Hey y'all, this is Anne with a quick content note. In this month's episode, we discuss the conflict between Israel and Palestine, along with some other serious topics. We realize this is an emotionally charged issue, and that you might prefer not to listen to three white people of European descent discuss it academically. Also, we do record about two weeks before we post, so our discussion may not include recent changes in the situation. Please be excellent to each other, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm an engineer. And I'm Mac, a history teacher. Welcome to Civics on the Rocks, the once-a-month podcast out of Texas. In this podcast, we, along with our producer, Anne, Hello. talk about politics, history, and science. And science fiction. We're also drinking. Yes, lots of drinking and bad jokes. Not distasteful, just poor quality. Okay, let's get started. The question of the day, are we the world's peacekeepers? Clearly not. There's not a lot of peace in the world for us to be keeping. Compared to what? Or that we have kept. What, what's the alternative exactly? Well, are we measuring against World War II? Yes. Or, no, no, let, let's, let's do a, a fair. Let's assume we weren't the world's peacekeepers. Let's assume that role was filled by China or okay. Russia. All right. So would, is it peacier? with the U.S. in that role? Or would we be more at peace with China fulfilling that role? I suppose it depends upon what other country in the world you live in. Mm. But, yeah, no, I mean, so, like, China's developing its own hegemony, you know, with, uh, with other countries where it's like, hey, you know, the USA has neglected you or Britain has neglected you or whoever, and so, you know, make a deal with us. It'll be great. Mm -hmm. um, Russia sort of seems to have a problem doing that. But, I mean, they've, they've done it with some countries. I mean, there are still some countries that are supporting them in spite of everything that's going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have our allies um, and friendly nations. But I, I mean, you could say, like... Like, which would be PCer, more peaceful, I guess, perhaps. I'm going with PCer, but uh, okay, PCer. Anyway, uh, China, like being the dominant, let's say, superpower, or the U.S. being the dominant superpower. I don't like. I I have a feeling, and I'm not saying this to like run down the United States of America, but I have a feeling like if, if you lived in like Mauritania or something, I'll be like, you know, take your pick, mm -hmm. six of one. Yeah. Um, so, but it, it's, we often historically, and it seems to be holding true into present day, like the way we manage relations with other nations and what we're motivated to do, um, to often achieve like short term aims. Yeah is we end up doing things like, oh, in the 70s and 80s, supporting dictators, because at least they're not communists. And yeah. then, you know, having things turn around and bite us in the ass. And it's like... Ugh. Over and over again. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, I think I, I would... Are we the world's peacekeeper? Yes. Badly. I think is, is, is the thing. Should we be? No. But in both cases, I think it's what's the alternative. Like, let's say we not. Let's say say we step back. It's Fortress America. Screw the world. We don't want to deal with that crap. We don't want to engage, and we stop. 
we scale down the army significantly. We, we redirect, you know, 800 billion dollars a year to other things in the military. And, and we just don't engage with the world at all. We step back from, from institutions and, and roles and everything else. We, we sell off overseas bases or whatever, you know, let go leases. There's a vacuum there. And, and it's not going to just be the way it is now, except without a U.S. Navy going all over the world and, and 500 overseas bases, I think, is, is the problem. I think our presence enables a level of stability. For who? For much of the world. So, well, how about let's talk about Europe specifically, because there was, especially during like the Cold War, the later Cold War, and then in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, there was a, a point of view, perhaps not wrong, that the overwhelming American presence in Europe, especially Western Europe, and the formation of the NATO alliance, that that is something that helped keep European nations from fighting one another as they historically are wont to do. To the point that, uh, and this, okay, I'll have to find this. This was in a, a, this was an article in an a, um, issue of Foreign Affairs in the 90s somewhere. I'll try to find it, but I know it happened. You don't recall exactly which issue from 30 years ago? Uh, <laughs> it's like 95, maybe? Um, you know, Sam, Samuel Huntington was all the rage, and, and uh, Francis well, yeah, Fukuyama. Samuel and, Huntington. And, I remember that and, so well. Yeah, and... Um, but it was like in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, and so there's no more War Warsaw Pact, and so all of these nations are now, hey, we're actually going to have free elections, and we're going to... So somebody went so far as to argue that, you know, given European history, the first thing we need to prioritize is maintaining a balance of power among European nations, so we need to give Germany nuclear weapons. Like, that was their thing, because Britain and France had nuclear weapons, so we're going to need to have Germany have nuclear weapons. And, and you know, we didn't go that route. You know, nobody did, and probably people read that, and they were like, dude, you need to, okay. But, well, like, no one considered the alternative that nobody have nuclear weapons? I mean, that's... do Does the world need a peacekeeper? Well, if... if okay... A, if if there were a hypothetical somehow true peacekeeper that could actually help keep the peace or maintain the peace, make peace, um, sure, because there's there's lots of humans, lots of nations that would seem to need that. But I, I don't know that like another country. Okay, but what about you know if it's a superpower and how are you going to exercise your might to, you know, because is I mean is that what it is that what it has to be? You know, peace and security for the new galactic empire. You know, that's... Yeah, well, no, no. But that's, I, I... Does the world need a peacekeeper? I'm going to say yes, because people have a habit of fighting as they continue to do. Okay. So so that's that's the first. Do, does there need to be one? Yes. Does it need to be a, a country? Could it be some sort of multinational thing? A or, concert or... of nations, if you will. Well, yes. that... Sure. Isn't that what the United Nations is for? I mean, like, have we just given up on them? <laughs> is this, well, I was going to say, is this the same United Nations that's about to have Iran chair the Human Rights Commission? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I don't, I don't think the UN was ever really equipped to enforce a peace. I think it was equipped to, to take care of international things that were generally agreeable and administer stuff. I don't think it's ever or, been equipped to 
Or at least that the Soviets wouldn't object to. Yeah, which is the other problem with the whole Security Council veto thing. That just jacks it all up. Um, but I, I don't... US is, the U.S. as a peacekeeper is the, the best of a bad set of options. Well, okay, so I don't think we're good at peacekeeping. Is that... That's can we right. say no, we yeah, all agree? Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think because we're good it does seem very peculiar how we choose what to get involved with. Mm -hmm. So, well, and that, you know, for that matter, we could actually look like when, whenever we have intervened anywhere, when have we done it, it where it was actually intended to be the role of a peacekeeper? Now, one time was in the early 80s in Lebanon, Lebanese Civil War, and we were there as part of a UN group, and that's where you know, 280 something Marines were killed in those, those barracks by a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Um, and that sort of soured a lot of people on the idea that we should be part of a pe peacekeeping group. But another time was in Bosnia in the nineties with, uh, Serbia attacking Bosnia and attempts at genocide mm -hmm. and ethnic cleansing and, and everything. And, and talking about how this is the kind of thing where we said never again, and it's happening in Europe and the Clinton administration, NATO, they were able to, to you know, get together a force that um, fought off the Serbs and forced a peace. Um, although, if people will remember, they, as the Clinton administration occasionally did, they were all thumbs in the beginning. Because at first they tried to sell it to the American people and say, we're only going to need air power. Um, and they had that... Um, on the eve of us getting very seriously involved in, in trying to stop Serbia from ethnic cleansing, hosted a town hall at, I believe it was Ohio State University, and Madeleine Albright was there. And the entire time, you had students, like, yelling and jeering in the stands, and you couldn't hardly hear anything, even with them being miked. Um, and it was just kind of a disaster, uh, because I don't think the Clinton administration expected that college students wouldn't like what they were doing, even though it was like a town hall for why we need to be doing airstrikes. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, th there was ethnic cleansing, there was attempted genocide going on. And ultimately, the leaders of Serbia were, what, tried in The Hague mm -hmm. uh, and imprisoned and or committed suicide beforehand. Yeah. Um, and so we could say, okay, that was an example. But again, that was not just us. That was a concert of NATO. That was NATO and another European nations working together. And for that matter, Ukraine. Now, what we're doing in Ukraine, yeah, it's not exactly a peacekeeping mission. It is a don't let Russia just roll over everything mission. Um, but we are sort of, sort of holding together um, a concert of nations. It's us and mm -hmm. NATO, but also other European countries that are not yet part of NATO and then other countries um, that we are getting to help maintain the sanctions. Note, though, the examples we're using there are all examples where there was a war and then the U.S. intervened. So, first of all, not I would argue not a peacekeeping role, a peace-enforcing, peacemaking role, which is which is tough. That's, you know, regardless of who you are and, and what, that trying to get warring parties to stop warring is not easy. Yeah. Other side, what about other places where conflict did not break out? Kind of arguing the negative case here. Of, yeah. You know. Where it's not going to make it in the news because right. conflict didn't break out. Now, going to your <clears> point <throat> about where the U.S. does and doesn't like to get involved. Yeah, I mean, pick an African nation. Yeah. 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 Af African or South Asian or, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places, Africa foremost, where we just kind of like, meh. So 
yeah, the scorecard geographically is very uneven. You know, I don't think it's maybe even been net helpful in Africa. Probably not net helpful in South America. Or Central America. Yeah. Going back a long time. Yes. Um, matter of fact, probably aggravated, if anything, in, in there. So, are we good at it? No. But, you know, like <laughs> Africa, we, we neglect, we ignore it and neglected Africa. So our role there, if we weren't peacekeeper, wouldn't have made it any different. Whereas, you know. Well, actually, that kind of is a good point. So right now there's a little skirmish going on in Israel and Palestine you might have heard about. Mm. Yeah. And we have chosen to take the side publicly and weapons-wise of the nation with the military bombing the nation without the military. Mm-hmm. So maybe us being involved is impacting that situation negatively. Whereas if we stayed out of it, it would still be a horrible, horrible situation. But we might have citizens in this country not protesting in the streets. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so to clarify on that point, when I was thinking Africa, I was intentionally excluding the Middle East because I figured that's a different kettle of fish. But, no, point taken, yeah. I mean, uh, right now... A lot of the American public, I can't honestly say whether it's the majority or not because I haven't seen any statistics on that, but it certainly seems like the majority from my Mm -hmm. personal social media feed is against our involvement with Israel. I don't know if we were to look at like a Gallup poll or Pew Research or something, I would venture to say a majority of Americans still support Israel. Um. It's a large group that is not on Israel's, not supporting Israel. Well, I I want to clarify that not to say, you know, picking one Mm. as, you know, it should be either Israel or it should be Palestine, because there are some people who are right now making that argument Mm -hmm. in either direction. But that the actions that Israel has chosen to take after they were attacked by terrorists and had Mm -hmm. horrible crimes committed against their people, just horrible, mm-hmm. by Hamas. There's no denying that. But they are choosing now to retaliate by bombing civilians. Yep. And the U.S. chose to wade in on this. They chose to take a stand. Are we okay with that stand? So... Like almost almost anything I would want to say to like venture into this topic sounds like being wishy-washy, but, and to say something like, well, it's a complicated topic and usually that's a dodge, but like, for example, I mean, has Hamas in the past, you know, put weapons or their headquarters or whatever near hospitals or schools or that sort of thing. Now we hear that they do, but this also, I mean, it sort of goes to the point of, can you, the information that's coming out, and even if you have reporters on the ground and, and this sort of thing, how trustworthy is some of the information? And now this is not a lead-in to saying, well, if you can't trust it, then we just shouldn't think about it. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but a lot of times when something hits the news that, you know, it, it's worth just like 
seeing what follow-up reports are and that kind of thing. But, I mean, it's definitely true that Israel has killed thousands of civilians uh, in Gaza. And there's also, you know, the, the tensions in the West Bank are heightening from the continued Israeli settlements and, and in the deaths. West Bank and yeah. deaths. Um, and there's plenty of Israelis that don't like the policies of Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and we could also ask a question. I mean, some of it is, is like, well, you know, how did it get to this point? Like, what Israelis want to know? Like, how did this attack happen? How are we? We're supposed to have the best or at least one of the best intelligence agencies in the world. How were we blindsided by Hamas to this extent that 1,400 of, of us were killed um, in, in one day? Um, and, you know, what was, you know, what was happening there? I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions for that. And, you know, the Biden administration immediately took a public stance. Israel has a right to defend themselves. But then they've also said, but, you know, we're pressuring Israel to head to allow like a humanitarian corridor, humanitarian missions to come in for them to not just indiscriminately, you know, bomb civilians to give civilians a chance to leave and that sort of thing. But there are continued attacks from Israel that are killing a lot of civilians. And if, if we say okay, that Israel does have a right to defend themselves and to go after Hamas and try to eradicate Hamas, but that Hamas primarily because they exist outside of Gaza too. There is some Hamas in, in the West Bank. Um, it's a strip of land that's not that big with 2 million people. Okay. And so any attacks in there, as surgical as you want to make them, are going to end up killing civilians. Mm -hmm. And so what, what would be, you know, if, if what Israel is doing is, is wrong, you know, the, so some, we could say some military action, okay, but, but to the extent that they're doing it in thousands of civilians, including thousands of kids that are getting killed, then what is an appropriate response from Israel? Because the, th the other thing I want to point out is even before Israel's response, there were a lot of people cheering what Hamas did. And that, you know, a lot of people in this country and, and obviously Israel are sensitive to that. Now, those people do not represent a majority of anybody. Okay. But, you know, there, there were still people that were doing it. And, and this is, and it actually relates to, to something else that I will tell my students that when you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what's happening now, what may happen in the future, is there's a lot of voices advocating for Palestine, for and the Palestinians for all the right reasons. But there's also a lot of people out there that are doing it who are anti-Semitic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that is, and that sometimes maybe surprised at, at you know, who, who is, um, and that anti-Semitism is probably, even though we know anti, that there is anti-Semitism in the world and there's anti-Semitism in this country, that it's probably more widespread than a lot of people realize that there's a lot of people in a lot of countries that, for instance, the, the, well, I'm not going to say the name of the document because I don't want to spread it, but it was something that was written a long time ago. It was written by a Russian general, and it was written to try to, you know, um, cast aspersions on, on the Jewish people, and it was, a, it was a hoax. It was fake, but there's a lot of people around the world that believe it's real, and, um, and that, that's, I mean, that's part of what's going on. But for the immediate, you know, we, we don't have, I mean, if if we ultimately have some kind of a peacekeeping role there, because right now it's, we're supporting Israel 
and we're strongly encouraging them to not bomb civilians and to allow for humanitarian aid to get to the people in, in Gaza. Um, yeah, we're not really doing the role of peacekeeper right now. I, I mean, it's not, and maybe if someday it's like, it sort of stops. I mean, what is it, what does it look like when it stops? Like, well, and I think that's one of the, one of the things I've noticed from, from early on was people kind of commenting that even before Israel took any actual action, the question was, well, whatever action you're going to, you're going to take, what is your plan for afterwards? Yeah. You know, you, you don't seem to have one. You've never really had one, to be honest. They kind of just said, well, we're just going to wall off this area and ignore it and hope it goes away or something. They, they never really dealt with it. Um, and I'm not blaming the victim here, but the situation is ugly, and part of it is because of Israel's own actions in not addressing the issues of the Palestinians. Well, Differentiating here between Hamas and the Palestinians. Yes. Yes. There has been a long historical engagement and support of Israel. That that is happening yeah. up to this point. But subsequent to this, I thought I found it very interesting how some of the very initial reactions of mostly from Biden, but you know, others as well, was actually cautioning Israel to not not make the mistakes that we made after nine eleven. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I thought that was a very surprising and newsworthy approach that didn't get a lot of play. And I was kind of shocked because I thought people who use any excuse to attack Joe Biden would do that because obviously how dare he criticize right. our reaction, you know. But that was a very <clears throat> authentic and real that Yeah, yeah. We, we, we flew off the handle and it went badly for everyone. For several, several years. Yeah, yeah. for a long time. 20. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe don't go off the handle is, is good advice. Um, well, and I am struck by the fact that, you know, we talk about an unpopular war that we were involved in, but now this is an unpopular war that people are calling we're, we're for supporting. us to just criticize. Like, I mean, that's calling for a ceasefire. People are asking the, the Biden administration to call for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And we're not even taking that step. And that that's what makes me question this, you know, role as a peacekeeper. Mm-hmm. If this is a democracy, if, you know, if, if the majority of the United States is saying, hey, let's do this, let's this be our course of action. Is there an obligation by the United States government to consider it? I'm going to say yes, <clears throat> period, as you phrase that. There, there just is. So, yeah, now whether or not they ultimately accede to that and how exactly you determine the will at any, any moment and how much that popular will is here today, gone tomorrow, is hard to judge. Yeah. Um, and, and side notes, I don't want to derail that topic because I think that's more, but just some thoughts I had to get out of my head. One is, let's not forget that the U.S. has a role but also doesn't control Israel. They, well, they no, actions. but that's... That's the thing, though, is that we have a control over what we do and say. And right. so far right now, what we're saying is we support Israel. Yeah. And a lot of Americans are going, the hell we do. We, mm-hmm. we don't support Hamas. Right. But we don't think this is the right course of action yeah. post a terrorist attack. Um, I'm always a little taken aback when it's always the U.S. who's expected to step in on this, I'll be honest. But that's... that We do. That's the thing, is if we're the peacekeeper, yeah. if that's what we've touted ourselves as being, if we're going to step Close into everybody that. else's business... So, I always thought the U.K. should really own this one, but that's me. Or the League of Nations. 
Yeah. Wait, I mean, the, yeah, the UK. Yeah. Because the UK is they like had it, they they it. Yeah, they, I mean, they they're the ones that... In the first place. Really. So, peace and security with our empire. Now, it, it's... Um, well, for one thing, again, if we if we did have a ceasefire, then what what do we do next? And what do we as a country support? What do we try to convince Israel to do? Is it to get everybody back to the table and try to go for the two-state solution again? I mean, what are there Palestinian? I mean, in, in terms of will of the people, I mean, the, the, the Palestinians that have so far survived in Gaza, are, are they going to be interested in, like, what, what is, because if you, and, and whether, and, and it's not so much, I'm not so much arguing like a right from wrong, and I also want to talk about public opinion in the United States, but if we're talking about the will of the people, um, you know, what if what the people want is, you know, is something that, that is, would just make the situation worse because there was a lot of demand in this country that, you know, we turn Afghanistan into glass, uh, after September 11th and, or, you know, and, and so, but then that sort of trailed off and it's like, ah, you know, trying to hold a country together that you can't really hold together. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, let's, let's say the U S calls for a ceasefire and Israel is like, okay, you know, okay, we'll do a ceasefire. What, what is next? And if Israel agrees to a ceasefire in part because of pressure from the United States and maybe other, other nations. Okay. We've, we sort of own that at that point. What, what do we, what do we do? I mean, in a role of peacekeeper in this situation, what are we specifically going to do or propose next? Um, and I don't know that anybody has any answers to that. And when it comes to public opinion here in the United States, it's like, so if we don't, if, if, if it becomes that, that the majority of the American people don't like the Biden administration's position, or, or for that matter, I mean, any, any occasion in history where like the president chooses a particular course of action in foreign policy and a majority of the people don't like it, okay, is that going to translate into enough votes to vote the person out of office because ultimately, you know, the people are the ultimate check in, in our system of government with the checks and balances, the, the, the will of the people, the vote of the people is, is the ultimate check. And so is that going to translate into enough votes to remove a president and then remove him in favor of whom and would whoever would defeat Biden in the next presidential election is the primary. Yeah. It, well, it won't be in the primaries. Um, would, well, I mean, I suppose it could, but I really doubt it. Um, would that new president, president elect hear the will of the people that, Hey, the main reason why we got rid of Biden is because of our Israeli policies. And so the new president coming in is going to say, okay, well, then our policy will, uh, in the Middle East, Israel and, Pal and the Palestinians will be something different. What's it going to be? And, and I mean, I know there, there are people out there that have answers, and some of those answers are, like, pretty extreme and grim mm -hmm. um, in either direction. But, you know, let's say we do get a ceasefire. What's next? if the American people don't like what the Biden administration is doing, so we vote somebody else in, is, is there a guarantee that that new president is going to have a policy that they like? Or what is that president going to hear, that president-elect, what will that president-elect have heard from the voters 
about what they want our foreign policy to be. And A, will they follow it? And B, if they do, you know. Is it better? Yeah. Is it better at making peace? Yeah. All right. Much needed cocktail break. You're here. Yeah. So we started the evening with Griswold Punch. What is in Griswold Punch? I can say that I kind of like it, but I've got no idea what it is. So um, it's named after uh, Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Cl- Clark Griswold. That that Griswold. I was hoping it wasn't, but okay. <laughs> um, so this is my husband's favorite Christmas movie. He and his cousin apparently used to watch it together. And so one Christmas she gifted us the moose mugs. Yeah. And so... Derek was looking for the punch recipe, and I was like, they're not going to have the punch recipe. Well, somebody on the internet made up their own version of it. So it is basically mulled wine. It's um, wine, black tea, a whole lot of sugar, some cloves, a cinnamon stick, three lemons, two oranges, and a bottle of wine. Oh, and half a cup of rum. (laughs) That's awesome. That tracks. So it's very, very tasty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And very, very dangerous. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with one mug, I think. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. It, it, it's got a lot of sugar in it, and sugar and alcohol can be problematic. So. Yes. For even before I became type 2 diabetic, like yeah. excessive sugar was like, whoa, wait, yeah. okay, this yeah. is not. But, That's why I um, stick to hard liquor. I've never met anyone yet who doesn't like it. So. <laughs> no, it gets it, made every year now. It's good. Multiple yeah. times. My um, my mother's favorite Christmas movie is your is a uh, Christmas Vacation, and I'm I'm just not that much of a fan. Honestly, I don't really get it either. Oh no, I get it. I just I get the whole, I just I'm like uh. the National Lampoons all of them movie wise. I always seemed to be trying too hard to be funny. And I was just like, sure, there were bits and lines and, and moments that are like really, really good. But then you're like, the rest of it's kind of a burdensome. But we have moose mugs, so you got to put we something do have in moose them. Mugs, yeah. Like Griswold punch out of it. So it's not all bad. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's I good. just, I mean, perhaps I'm not the, 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 the best one to vote on Christmas movies because, like, ask me how many times I've seen a Christmas story. Seen the the, the yeah, movie you, that you everyone in our generation sure what it was about or yeah yeah no I've I've seen it once and it was the first time I saw it was like three years ago I, I didn't have see you it seen in the Die Hard I have mm-hmm. okay. have you seen on Her Majesty's Secret Service I have I mean Telly Savalas come on oh, yeah yeah no, if that I've, doesn't I've say Christmas that, yeah or, or Diana Rigg but anyway I, I, I sorry don't think I've actually seen this so. no the James a, Bond movie so it's Maybe, okay, maybe like a long, long time yeah. ago. It's the one George Lazenby Bond film. Yeah, the one and only. And it Did was it in the, the 60s. At the beginning? No. No. Okay. The, yeah, and you're going to have that to That was a Roger specific. Moore one. Yeah. Okay. With the, the British flag yeah, on the yeah, parachute. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was Roger yeah, Moore. No, th- this was... Um, I think I saw it because I knew it enough to find him annoying or something, but that was just because... But it's, it's got Diana Rigg in it. Um, As and, Mrs. James Bond. Yeah, because they get Tracy Bond. Very good. And she gets married at the end. And uh, to to him, obviously. Um, 
Oh, that makes sense with the last name. But it, yeah. yeah. Um, or it could have just been a coincidence that they were both, you know, maybe they're cousins. No, it's not Arkansas. It's Britain. Um, oh, wait. Yeah, I was like, yeah, but that doesn't... But they're not royals. Oh, okay. Wow, I'm just... That was a lot of hate there. I apologize. <laughs> um, okay, I'm, no, okay it's... no, I'm going to push back on the hate thing because okay. we're Americans and that's kind of our jam. Oh, that's true. That's so right. That's yeah. Um, not our cup of tea, as it were. As, a, as the world's peacekeepers. <laughs> oh, my hey. God. All right, you know, so, yeah. So, I'm just going to say, yeah, so much of the world's peacekeeping involves cleaning up crap Britain left behind. Well, there's that. You know, well, but there, actually, there's... if you think about it, we are the crap that Britain left behind. We, we, we as no. one of the crap that Britain left behind. Just to wrap that up, I'm currently it's... drinking eggnog. I finished Griswold Punch. Oh, you did? Um, okay. But. The Vukare And I would like up. to say that it is good eggnog this year. It has been, I, I'm going to argue it's been good egg, eggnog every year but one. And we know which one. Yeah, it's is, is, so, it, is it time for the story? Speaking of I owning think it's it. Time. Oh, well, hold on, hold on. Let's, if we're going to go to the eggnog side story, then let's at least set up that, okay, so there's an eggnog, and I've been making this eggnog for many years now. Yes. And it is an honest-to-gosh homemade eggnog. It has egg. The egg is not cooked. They grew the chickens themselves. I didn't grow the chickens myself. Okay. It's got three different kinds of dairy in it. <laughs> it's got pounds of sugar in it. Um, it's if got you're allergic different... to anything, don't drink <laughs> yeah, this. this is just, yeah. yeah, I rub peanuts on it just for fun. <laughs> um, and it's got three different boozes in it. It's got whiskey, <clears throat> it's got rum, it's got cognac. Because you got to cut the, the whole cream and the half and half that go into it as well to make it a little more tolerable. So I, I would like to tell the story, the incident. From my point of view first, and then okay, you... and then I can give the backstory as yeah. to who came up with the idea. The, uh, these two, a, mo- a moment of context. Can, the original um, recipe calls for bourbon. Yes, and I decided early on, you know what? Technically, that no. just means whiskey, so I'll open it up to other whiskey. So I tended to make Wait, it with the, a rye. No, no, let's. First of all, you were making it with what bullet for yes, years? For years, and it was perfect. It was the world's most perfect eggnog. I hate eggnog. I have never drink eggnog, and I loved your eggnog. This is the only eggnog I will drink. If y'all are wondering, this is going to be my fault. And <laughs> so, like, I I even talk this stuff up to people. Like, I talk about there's the only eggnog I ever drink, and. I've gotten my own bottle over the years. Every year. Yeah, every year you want I, I feel honored and like a treasured friend when I get my bottle. That's how I knew I loved my husband was when I would share my bottle of eggnog with him. But um, yeah, so we show up for the annual Christmas party where we're going to get the eggnog. I'm so excited. And where's the eggnog? Well, don't, don't, you don't forget which, which, which Christmas this was. This was December 2020? Yeah. Finally, people are starting to get together after a pandemic. No, it wasn't 2020. Oh, 2020. We we still were quarantined in okay. 2020. So to us, it's 2021. Okay. Yeah, still but it was first... it was the first time we were all together after post pandemic. Yeah. For a holiday party. Eagerly awaiting. The get my eggnog. big mug of eggnog because I'm gonna go to town like I do every year, and I take a sip, and it's just wrong. It it tasted like um like you'd accidentally poured some gasoline into the bottle, and then not cleaned it all the way before putting in the eggnog. I don't know how to put it, but I'm sitting there and I'm just stunned into silence. I don't even say anything because I'm just like, it. I kept drinking it because I was surely I was wrong. Maybe I was having a stroke and that's why it tasted so bad. It 
because I couldn't explain it because the eggnog itself is perfect. And honestly, like, there I think were four of us in the kitchen holding <laughs> glasses of eggnog, kind of looking at each other, like, what is going on? And I, I believe it was Kelly who finally was like, what the fuck is wrong with the eggnog? <laughs> what was wrong with the eggnog, Steve? <laughs> let's, let's unwind a month or so, if you will. Um, Mac and I were getting together, and we were talking about current events, as we are wont to do, and had ice cream. Mm-hmm. It's and, important to have toppings for ice cream. Yes. And Mac decided it would be a really good idea to top ice cream, Bluebell homemade vanilla, by the way, with Laphroaig scotch, which those of you not familiar with Laphroaig, it tastes like you were walking on a Scottish beach, tripped, and your mouth is full of peat and gravel. And some seaweed and... Because literally it's made with, with they burn peat to, to flavor this vodka. This vodka, this yeah. uh, this whiskey. Th- this is this is a this is a scotch that some scotch drinkers will be like, no. It's one of my favorites, though. But when we put it on the ice cream, it's amazing. It was magical. It was so it good. It really makes a good topping for ice cream. You didn't taste. The Were peat. you high at the time? I don't no. Think so. Um, How I've much have you been, been drinking before this moment? Not much. Not <laughs> no, think. not much. I remember it, so it wasn't that much. I mean, look, number one, I love scotch. And so number number two, this is just kind of like a you know, hey, I mean, what's Why the not? worst that could happen? We could throw out a small bowl of ice cream. Yeah. But it was like, no, this was really good. It was really good. And so obviously, yeah. my mind went yeah. to, mm-hmm. hey, if this works with ice cream, which is basically milk and sugar, it'll work with eggnog, which is basically milk and sugar. Um, it did not have the same magical effect. So to sum up, you had the world's most perfect recipe. <laughs> For eggnog. Everyone loved it. People came from miles around to drink your eggnog. It, it was perfect and wonderful and true. And you were like, let me change that. Yes, that's accurate. That's what I did. I did can, can I just say, I, I like the eggnog with the scotch. <laughs> I, no one else did. Yeah. And it's that's a, fine. I, yeah. I didn't even. So we and spent the yes. rest of the evening trying to drink it. At which point, one of you brilliant gentleman fessed up <laughs> well yeah you fessed up and then you decided we'll try putting bitters in it oh i forgot about because that, that might help the flavor nope so i literally went out and bought bitters so i could drink your friggin eggnog <laughs> i think we got through half the bottle before we gave up yeah you see and the thing because bitters i mean there's there's a very strong nutmeg flavor and maybe that would cut the scotch but at that point you're just like drilling a hole in the boat to let the water out what was sad about it was it still tasted like your wonderful eggnog at the beginning but then it was this horrific aftertaste of face like planting onto a scottish beach a scottish beach or a car engine i don't know yeah, it was I, I i hope never to experience that flavor again i i i have i have no future plans of blending with with Laphroaig or any other scotch, I'll be honest. So having taste tested this year's batch, I'm very happy to say for anyone who might be attending the holiday party this year, it's safe to drink the eggnog. <laughs> and, I, and I do like the, the perfect eggnog too, but I also like the scotch eggnog. Get it? Scotch eggnog, see? Scotch eggnog. Uh, yeah. yeah. Were you laughing with I, that I, joke I act- while you were mixing I in was, the poison yeah, into I was, our I was religious... holding on to that joke and hoping to debut it, and then, then it was roundly ridiculed. So yes, we brought out the bottle with the skull and bones on it. Is it? Yeah. So It's like, oh, no, wait, it's scotch. <laughs> so. Won't do that again. 
Promise? Promise. Yeah. <laughs> now it's time for What's That Over There? Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> it just occurred to me that my What's That Over There is actually another kind of weighty topic. <laughs> so I, I was picked... Well, I got a summons for jury duty, and uh, recently, and so I've always had the. I mean, city, it, county, federal. Oh, uh, county. Okay. And so, and I and I've always just had this feeling of you know jury duty, and I will absolutely do jury duty. I mean, some people are like, oh, you want to get out of jury duty? And it's like, oh, it sucks you get called. No, it doesn't suck you get called. It's very important. Our third branch of government does not work unless all of you show up for jury duty when you get summoned. And so, but I also always had just sort of the the feeling in the pit of my stomach that like if I ever do get called on a jury it's going to be like a murder case or a capital murder case or something that I would not especially like doing but you know so anyway is there people you enjoy sentencing uh, no but especially something as as brutal and horrific as is that so um I get some it's a Monday so there's a lot of people in the central jury room in the county courthouse or actually the building next door to the county courthouse standing room only hundreds of people and judge comes out one of the county judges and explains how everything's going to work and then pretty soon a, a clerk comes up and says okay the first panel okay because the it's it's a jury panel that gets called first because for those of you that don't know you got to go through a questioning process to make sure that there isn't anybody on the jury that's going to be like prejudiced or biased or have a conflict of interest in some way. Um, and there's a fancy French name for it. Uh, yeah, and it is every, uh, everybody else. Yeah, it's voir dire, um, which is a, a I French. I believe that's the tenex, Texas pronunciation. Yeah, no, the Texas, the Texas pronunciation is voir dire. Um, and I think that pronunciation may have spread to some neighboring states. But in Texas, it's voir dire. So if you hear voir dire, that's the process of questioning jurors to ensure that you have a, a, a um, impartial jury. And so, but there's 99 of us, okay? The the clerk says, this panel will be 99. And as soon as he said 99, I was like, fuck, this is a murder case. And I thought, they're going to call me. Like, I just had a feeling. I could have been wrong. But I was the second name called. Which means I also had to wait for the other 97 people to get called. We had to line up. Eventually, we get up into the courtroom. and And sure enough, we get there and the judge tells us, this is a capital murder case. Now, in this case, the state was not seeking the death penalty. They were going to seek life without parole, um, but even so. So, Vordier lasted the day. First, there were some questions from the judge and some explanation of how things work, and then the prosecutors went in the morning and the um, defense went in the afternoon. And um, when that was done, we went out in the hall so that the attorneys for both sides and the judge sort of talked over jury selection. Um, and then they called us all back in after about an hour. I mean, it took them a bit. And I mean, cause they're, I mean, they're 99 people. Um, and they selected the jurors and I was not picked. Um, although I had, I mean, I did just have, I had a feeling most of the day that like, I just know I'm going to get picked. I did not get picked. So, and God bless the people who did. Um, but yeah, especially during Vordire when the prosecutor asked, so has any, anybody here or a close family member been, um, uh, victim of a violent crime. And I'm just going to say that some of the responses were incredibly sobering, um, especially when you saw the number of people um, who, and the, and, they, and the prosecutor said, 
you know, we're so I was going to ask specifics from each of the jurors that held up their their number, but he said if you're not comfortable describing it in front of everyone or saying what it was, that we can talk to the judge in private later. And so there were a few people that did that. Um, but even for the people who spoke, just the number of people who have had like close relatives murdered, including some where there's no, where no one was ever prosecuted. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that was rough to listen to. And it was rough to hear from some people. And, and you really, I mean, it was definitely sobering. So that was the thing. And, but it, it is, it's another thing that just shows, I mean, how important it is because again our system of justice to the extent that it works it does not work unless you have people who are willing and there were people there who had arranged like child care and other things and took off so that they could show up for jury duty because they i mean because the judge said this is probably going to last several days so i need to know from any of y'all if you're going to have problems in the next few days or if you've got doctor's appointments to take kids to or whatever and we'll try to you know um and and just yeah there were a bunch of people that showed up because it was their duty and and that was definitely a good thing even though it was pretty grim circumstance and you weren't picked i was not picked but it was still very Mm -hmm. very sobering yeah so your having a feeling is one for two yeah by my record and i'll also point out for the record that you did say duty i did and I got to tell you, if you're interested, my overall record for having a feeling is about like one time out of 40 is, is probably how often my feelings are right. So like for eggnog or something, you know, I could have a gut feeling of putting scotch into eggnog, but you know what? That uh, didn't, didn't quite work. I, I was on a jury once, but that was a long time ago. So that's not over there. That's way over there. So Yeah. I was on a jury once, but it was a while ago too. Mine was odd. It was a grand jury. Oh, fancy. Yeah. Different. Did you indict a ham sandwich? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Well, well done, sir. <laughs> no, we actually caught uh, an error on a prosecutor on one case, mm. which was entertaining. Wasn't particularly consequential, but uh, that's for another time. But anyway, so the uh, the thing that I had noticed this week was I had a ran into a fascinating podcast out of Lawfare, specifically their Chatter series, mm-hmm. which is an interview, kind of intersection of, of national security and popular culture. And so they were interviewing a guy um, who'd written a book, I think, or a couple books, and it was about the, um, like a better word, the intersection of international relations and sci-fi. Oh, cool. And so he actually, apparently, as he put it, used to be a serious professor of international relations, and then he started getting into sci-fi, and so now he writes and teaches all about sci-fi, in part because it actually grew out of a, he was um, teaching an overseas class and was trying to find references that they would relate to, was having difficulty, so he started doing, like, Game of Thrones. Yeah. And they all were like, oh, yeah! And so he, he ran with it and was able to find pop culture-type sci-fi references and found actually really good examples of a variety of international relations concepts in science fiction. Um, the podcast, I'd like to get his book. The podcast was fascinating. He touched on a variety of things, talked about Star Wars, talked about Battlestar Galactica, but mostly talked about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And it, it was interesting because he talked about how, like, when you, the, uh, lots of examples of how 
some of the episodes have have very nice contrast between idealist and realist schools of international relations. <laughs> and then um, that is one way to put it. Yeah, and then yeah, and then uh, brought out typically in the mirror mirror episode. This is all original series, by the way. Yeah, because why would you talk about anything else? Yeah. His um, next generation is brilliant. Okay, I'm gonna. I will throw down, sir. Okay, I, to be fair, I never really watched much of it, mostly because I, whatever I did, there was an annoying kid, and they were all sitting so, around in a living room. Dude. Okay, so, so wait. And also, there I can't were believe so you would talk episodes. that way about Wesley Crusher. There were so many episodes. I'm sure some of them were good, and some of them, especially so, the ones I saw in the beginning, were like really boring. Well, the ones in the beginning are pretty cheese tax. Well, they should not be. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I would wait but, till season two, but which actually well, he, they deconstructed that podcast a little bit, which okay. is fascinating. So let me, let me. I think for for listeners at home, obviously, you have three people that kind of like Star Trek here, but. I do think it is interesting to focus on the original series because when the original series, you know, hit the air, I mean, there was a lot of talk about the the prime directive, non-interference, and how this was sort of a reaction to U.S. involvement in Vietnam and a lot of things. But yet at the same time, as Steve was saying, you do have these episodes where there is, okay, there's the idealism, and then you usually have Captain Kirk saying, but that doesn't apply here. And it's like, okay. So I also want to say that there this is what I want to say about the, the next generation. That the best Star Trek episodes out of, out of all the series, although I have to say I haven't seen Deep Space Nine. I need to watch Deep Space Nine. I know. So minus Deep Space Nine. The best episodes in Star Trek are in the next generation. The worst episodes of Star Trek are in the next generation. Whoa. You're an avid watcher of the current Star Treks, right? Yes. All of them? Yeah, I like them. And you're going to say that the worst episodes were in Next Generation. Yeah. I can't. I'm sorry. Podcast is over. That's it. (laughs) I'm ending it here. Last call. So, what we're drinking now is a cocktail called a Vucare, which is a New Orleans cocktail. Gesundheit. Yeah. And you can find it in a, uh, in a book called um, Famous New Orleans Cocktails and How to Mix Them, which is one of the best cocktail books uh, I've owned. And um, so this, this cocktail, I'm going to say, sort of violates a, a rule out there that you don't mix base liquors. So it involves uh, equal parts of cognac or brandy and rye whiskey and um, sweet vermouth. Now, vermouth isn't a base liquor, but the cognac and the, and the rye whiskey are. But in addition to the rye, the cognac, and um, the vermouth, and we use antique vermouth, um, you also put in dashes of, uh, dashes of Peychaud's bitters, Angostura bitters, but then you also have um, a teaspoon of Benedictine, and which is a liqueur made by monks in Europe someplace. And um, there's like five of those. It's yeah, no, I know, and it's not the ones that make Chimay. Um But it's I like Benedictine. For me, it tastes like Christmas. Now in the Vucare cocktail, I think because of the vermouth that we were using, the the Benedictine got a little buried. Um, but I, I still like it. To me, it is it is kind of a Christmas cocktail. I might just like boost the Benedictine a little bit. But Benedictine is also my favorite thing to put in a cup of coffee. If you're going to put a little alcohol in a cup of coffee, I like Benedictine in a cup of coffee. It, it complements it very well. There are a lot of people 
uh, who think that Benedictine tastes like cough syrup. Um, but for me, no, it tastes like Christmas. I, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. I thought it was a tasty whiskey cocktail. Um, I, I, I agree though that to me, it tasted very similar to like a Manhattan because mm-hmm. it had, yeah, I'd it, agree. Yeah. It had the whiskey and it had the, the Antica. And I think, I think the, the problem, so to speak there is, is you with Antica, you can't do equal parts. No, you gotta you gotta probably have the antique. You got it down. You gotta yeah. yeah. I think everything else will be fine. Pull it down a little bit. But and antique is great. But yeah. it is a lot. Yeah. No. And and that is so. That's another thing. Is like it doesn't mean that like in a cocktail that calls for sweet vermouth that I would use some other sweet vermouth. I would use antique. I would just use a little less. Yeah. I think I'd dial it in nicely. So it was good. I give it a thumbs up. Thank you. And what did you think? No, I was. I'm, I'm still sipping mine because it was a little strong for me. Yeah, it is pretty much 100% alcohol. <laughs> and I've been drinking a lot of sweet things tonight. Um, yeah. But uh, no, actually, it's not bad. I'm glad you all like that, as as opposed to the Lafroig eggnog. Yeah, that was awful. Yeah, <laughs> that was a crime against humanity. I've heard. <laughs> so we got like three winners tonight. So yeah. 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 Griswold Punch, Griswold eggnog, punch. and uh, Bucuray. Perfect mm-hmm. eggnog. Which, if you're looking it up, is not spelled like it sounds because it's it, French. Yeah, no, it is. It, it is, is French. V-I-E-U-X-C-A-R-R-E. It'll and be it means, in the show. What does it mean? Old Square? Yeah, town it meant square. Old Square. I was very disappointed. I thought it meant like Heart View or mm. View no. the Street. I don't know. Yeah, it was. It just sounds so fancy because it's French. Is Vu yeah. Square? Does anyone know? I have no idea. I'm it's Vu Old. I'm assuming Correa Square because it starts with a C, but that's, that's yeah. not a real good basis. For I me. don't know either way. Clearly no one here took French. Language. Yeah. <laughs> no, I did not. My German is not helping me. I took Latin and it's not going to work. I took Spanish. Well, certainly between the Spanish and the, you the would Latin, think. we should have you would think. Nope. Yeah. German's not helping you would think so. No. Well, so. Yeah. Sorry, no. I'm mean, going to invade France or something. The German language well, isn't guess, there to help anything. Uh, what is it? Viejo is old man? I don't know. So that would be view, old? It could be. Maybe. See, in, in Latin... In I don't Latin, know what square is. Uh, in Latin, uh, senex is old man, from whence the word senate, which is council of elders. Old white guys, yep, gotcha. Yeah. But it's also the old root for... for <laughs> yes. They're old women there too, thank you. Not in the Senate. Not as many as there used to be. Well, in the R. U.S. R. Senate, yes, not the Roman yeah, Senate. No. So today. Sorry, I'm back in the. <laughs> I'm I'm way back when. Olden times. Yeah. Yes, the olden times. We've moved on. Yes. <laughs> we let women and others sometimes actually vote a little. Uh, okay. We let. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I just did a curtsy for anybody who's listening at home. Hey, I've, I've, I've seen how the voting rules work nowadays. Yeah, that seems to be what's going on. They let some people vote. Yeah, yeah thanks. So, And we have articles like, maybe we should be looking for a better quality voter. And no, that's not coded language for anything. Yeah. Okay, well. okay. How about consent of the governed? Are you governed? Okay, then. And this is why I always bring up old white guys. Yeah, yeah no, and that's this, this podcast has been brought to you by... Old white guys. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Talking from the safety of Texas suburbia. 
Which is just more and more disappointing. And I still think it's because all the freaking Californians who moved here. I don't think it's them. I think there was a concerted effort by Texas politicians to skim off the highly conservative elements of other states. Primarily well, that is California, absolutely true. To bring them to Texas to bolster their. Border. Yes, that was that was the Texas Enterprise Fund. That, yes. So Rick Perry went around saying, "Hey, if you're conservative, come to Texas." I mean, we're good for pro business. Yeah. So, not that we aren't weren't conservative in the first place, but he brought brought all the crazies here. Yeah. Which didn't help anything. Did Did you hear Although how this week here, we voted but... to bring back coal plants? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's not exactly <laughs> what it said, but it was oh, more natural gas, it? I think, than coal. Just means it was that fracking. It's going to be easier to bring and coal plants. plants. Yes, yeah. but they also did vote, and we—I should say we, because it's the people we voted for a cost of living increase for, for retired teachers. Oh, I did vote for so that. So that's good. Um, and then there were a number of funds that were well, including the the you know coal plant thing, but some other <laughs> funds about I mean, anything water other than renewables fund. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I voted for the, I voted for the water thing. The water yeah, thing, and there was another one. Um, I actually voted for most of them. And I voted the for I most voted of them. Against, but there were got some got voted up anyway. Was yeah. yeah. Me. And the one one of the ones I voted for actually got voted down. I voted to increase the retirement age on judges. Oh, I see, I voted against that. No, I voted for, for it. it. I don't old white guys. <laughs> okay, here's my here's my thing on on old elected officials. Period. I don't like arbitrary limits on their age, and I don't like arbitrary limits on their terms because the voters should be able to vote in people if they want them. So limits on who the voters can vote in, I don't like. If you want a president who can sit there and be there for five terms because he's that freaking popular and successful, fine. Let him run for five terms. See, I actually agree with that. Repeal the 22nd Amendment, yep. which could be a whole other thing. I'm sorry, but... To talk about. There are some old, senile people who do not need to be in positions of power anymore. I agree, but the problem there is not that you need an age limit to fix it, is that you need better voter engagement. So... I understand your point. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I want the old white guys out. So the, the... Well, okay... That's not and I am voting that, against though. them. I'm not sure that just, why I voted against that I, I'm amendment. I'm not sure why dictatorial matriarchy is any better, but okay, no, sure. I don't know. Let's give it a try and find the fuck out. Because <laughs> really, I don't think it could do any worse at this point. I, 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 yeah, I can't dispute that. Can I just unify us with Lafroy Gagnog? <laughs> Again, that just proves my point, sir. <laughs> I'd like to think that I wasn't old enough. There's happened, something in it for everybody. <laughs> Hate, disdain, <laughs> ridicule. Yeah. We we had contemplated calling this episode "Peace on Earth." I'm I'm guessing we, we won't go with that now. No, it was, it was mm. retitled we "Old White it. Men." <laughs> Which I will point out. This is though where I wanted. I'll, I'll shoehorn in my just my contextualization. I guess where I've had several coworkers that are of millennial age and so forth, and they're freaking out about the world being on fire. Basically, I'm pointing out to them, well, okay, it, it is, but this is a lot like what it was back in the 70s and 80s. So, Well, the, cli- the effects of climate change are, are making things a little different. But there is a lot yeah. that is, yeah, I mean, we've been through rough economic times before. Um, we, well, and this is, this is one of the reasons why I really think that, like, younger millennials you know, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, whatever, that they're going to end up being a lot like our grandparents because they're living through rough times that are, that are not exactly, they're not identical to mm-hmm. the 1930s, but there's a lot of similarities. And that are, that are 
are are making the impression because it's new to them. Yeah, relatively, I think it's the big thing. Yeah, um, I, I don't disagree. The world's on fire, and that's a problem. And I'm not trying to trivialize. It's just like they're they're shocked at how bad it is, and like, well, it was it was it's been bad before. My point was it's it's been bad before, and we made it through. So don't you know throw everything out just because it seems bad. We can get through this. I have many students over the last few years, in particular, and currently, that um, I mean, they're literally thinking like, you know, why buy a house? Why have a family? Why? I mean, the the world's gonna mm-hmm. end essentially because of things that they've heard about climate change and and other things, and not that. And again, I mean, not that climate change isn't gonna have has already had some catastrophic effects. Yeah, it's um, having and will continue to have. Yeah. yeah. But another thing, I mean, some of the catastrophic effects right now are man-made. And one of the one of the things that I've mentioned to students, because they're especially worried about Russia and Ukraine, and then this, you know, what's happening with Israel and the Palestinians, and, like, did Russia have, you know, Iran being involved, and then did Russia maybe have any hand in it or whatever. And I would have students just point blank say, do you think we're headed toward a world war? And I said, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but if we're on a pathway, we're not, a pa- we're not on a pathway away from one. If we're on any kind of a pathway, it's toward one. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. But, and that's where I also tell them that, you know, I kind of wonder if sometimes big wars happen because people think they won't. I mean, after mm-hmm. September 1st, 1939, in that winter... There were a lot of people in Britain and France that thought, well, this is going to blow over. There'll, there'll be some peace agreement like there was when we gave Czechoslovakia to the Germans, you know, something. Um, that And nope, that's not what happened. Um, and um, so, you know, we, we have, it's like in, in history textbooks, the problem is we know what happened. And so when, when the history textbooks talk about, for high school, whatever, talk about World War II and the causes of World War II, well, we know what the causes are now. But for people living during the time that those causes were happening, there was a bunch of other shit happening too. And it's like, you know, why should we pay more attention to this versus that or that sort of thing? And can you identify the things that eventually did turn into the causes that, that precipitated? Um, and, I mean, for some things we can say, yes, absolutely, but, I mean go back and look at the read some of the papers in the 30s and yes they were worried about war scares and things like that but it it ultimately we kept down that path and and it happened um and so today i mean there can be factors going on right now that in textbooks 100 years from now they're going to say you know these were the contributing factors to world war three or whatever you know and so when they ask it's like are we, is there going to be a world war? It's like, I don't know. I hope not. But right now we are not really headed on a path away from one. So that's another reason why it kind of reminds me of the thirties. I was trying to get a little chipper and that, that didn't work. Wow, well, I, really, I would, I, there I really is one thing in that. particular I'd like to comment on in that was you were talking about the seventies and eighties and you know, things mm. getting better. Um, and you mentioned uh, the climate crisis mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. students being concerned, you know, why bother doing anything if the world's going to end due to the yeah. climate crisis. In the 70s and 80s, there were con- concerted efforts to improve certain things in the climate mm-hmm. 
that worked, yeah. which is why we no longer have a hole in the ozone. And there are other examples of that. So I would use that as an example to say, no, we can impact the climate in a oh, positive yeah. way. Mm-hmm. It is very doable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have to have the will to do it. Yes. And yep. and take those actions on a personal level. Yeah. yeah. But and, and 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 leverage your voice and your voice, yeah. yeah. And there are ways to, to do that. larger change. Well, and these these are things that we talk about in my government class. That there are like civic participation, civic duty, or whatever. It's it's not just jury duty and voting. I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can be active. Um, and I actually I do give them examples of the Clean Air Act because I talk about what air was like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what air would be like if Acid you know we, we still had yeah. yeah, which was a thing. It's not like it just disappeared. I mean, we you know there there was a concerted effort to do things mm-hmm. that cleaned up you know the air and that helped. Um, but yeah, no, there's different ways to get actively involved, positive ways, and to persuade people and convince people. One thing that makes me feel bitter about the world is I have two teenage nieces who are very aware of what's going on in the world and are very informed and want to do something about it. Like it was a big deal that my niece was able to vote for the first time last year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all celebrated it. I mean, it was, and so, I, I was, <laughs> I was talking to my husband about this as we were standing in line to vote this week. Like, do you remember the first time you voted? And neither of us really could. Mm-hmm. And because it wasn't, it wasn't my parents very much encouraged voting or very involved in that, but it wasn't made a big deal. Nobody took a picture and sent it to all the relatives. Of course, it was a little harder to do back then, but I, I do see involvement from young people in a way that I I wasn't involved when I was their ages. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be very heartening. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I bring up this public dislike of Israel's actions and what's going on right now and wanting the U.S. to call for a ceasefire and to do something different is that they are very motivated and very active and everything is about contacting your representatives. Yes. They're providing the links. They're providing the phone numbers, you know. Um, And so it's not a passive... Oh man, this sucks. Yeah, the world's yeah. ending. It's a holy crap. We got to do something now. Attitude, which is excellent. I'm I'm excited to see that. And I will say that over the years, I've had a number of students with that, with that kind of attitude, with that kind of belief, including a number of students who now, as adults, are very active in um, um, pursuing causes and promoting causes and, and increasing awareness and and giving people information about like here's what you can do. And for that matter, when it comes to public opinion, even if public opinion nationwide, um, you know, is where it is, let's say, solidly supporting Israel, that doesn't mean that it can't change to be believe that Israel has a right to defend itself. But at the same time, there needs to be a halt. And, And some, you know, like people need to start thinking about a solution that doesn't involve pushing people into the sea. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, um, and and also pe- doesn't and involve public... anti-Semitism yeah. or yes. Islamophobia. Those aren't yeah, the only and, and public yeah. opinion can be changed. 
and mm -hmm. hopefully for mm -hmm. the better for positive solutions. Well, here's to the youth of America. Yeah. The youth of America. You have been listening to Civics on the Rocks, a once a month podcast featuring a real engineer going by the fake name of Steve, a real history teacher going by the fake name of Mac, and a fake producer going by the real name of Ann Chminsky. That's me. The guys drop a lot of references while they talk. We've tried to document them all in order of appearance on our website at civicsontherocks.podbean.com. We're also Civics on the Rocks on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads if you want to suggest a question of the day, or cocktail recipes, or different types of media you think we should check out. Whatever please drop by. We may also have an account on the platform formerly known as Twitter, but it's hard to tell these days. If you didn't like our podcast, well, I doubt you're still listening, but if you are, thanks for giving it a go. We know we're not everybody's glass of iced tea. If you did like our show, please follow, review, and share. And stay tuned for our next episode next month. Until then, cheers, y'all.